Hello and uh, welcome to this Heart Asia podcast. Uh, I'm Karthik, Editor-in-Chief of Heart Asia. And with me here today is uh, Dr. Andrea Beaton. Uh, Andrea Beaton uh, recently summarized the 2015 germs criteria along with Professor Jonathan Karapetis in, in a previous issue of Heart Asia. So, hi, Andrea. Why don't you introduce yourself to our readers? Thank you. Um, so, my name is Dr. Andrea Beaton. I'm a cardiologist at Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C., Um, I have the pleasure of conducting rheumatic heart disease research. I also have the pleasure of serving on the American Heart Association Committee for Rheumatic Fever, Endocarditis, and Kawasaki's that commissioned the 2015 revision of the Jones Criteria. Uh, thanks, Andrea. So uh, Dr. Andrea has uh, recently co-authored the uh, 2015 Jones Criteria revision, which was published last year in circulation. So, Andrea... Uh, Since this revision has a lot of implications for people in developing countries who see uh, rheumatic heart disease, can you uh, tell us uh, what you think uh, are the implications for people practicing in developing countries? Absolutely. So this is the first revision since 1992, and it was long awaited. The Jones criteria have always focused on specificity, so not over-diagnosing acute rheumatic fever. But as the burden of disease has shifted into developing countries, there was an overall global sense that the Jones criteria were becoming outdated. Other criteria had emerged, criteria from Australia, criteria from India, criteria from New Zealand, that had a higher degree of sensitivity. And a lot of great research had happened between 1992 and 2015 that taught us a lot about what rheumatic fever looked like in developing nations. And it turns out it just wasn't exactly the same. So when we started the revision for the Jones Criteria in 2014, what became the 2015 Jones Criteria, we wanted to take these new advancements and understandings into consideration to make these criteria more applicable for areas that are really burdened by acute rheumatic fever, low- and middle-income countries around the world. To do that, we ended up splitting out the Jones criteria into a low-risk population group and a high-risk population group. Research out of Australia and some other regions had shown us that the typical migratory polyarthritis, that joint involvement that swells and moves between joints, wasn't the only way that arthritis could present in patients with rheumatic fever. To account for this, if you're in a moderate or high-risk population, You can now include monoarthritis, polyarthritis, and or polyarthralgia as a major criteria for, to meet the Jones criteria for acute rheumatic fever. Additionally, for both groups, a, a big change in these criteria are that we accept subclinical rheumatic heart disease, carditis, as a major criteria for acute rheumatic fever. So not only do patients, can patients be diagnosed with carditis through clinical exam, which is still acceptable and counts as a, as a major criteria of carditis, if populations have access to echo and there's an echocardiogram performed during a presentation with suspected acute rheumatic fever, cardiac changes seen on that echocardiogram or subclinical carditis can also count towards the major criteria, and that's for both high and low-risk populations. Uh, additionally, we also adjusted the minor criteria based both on published research data and on expert consensus from those working in high-prevalence regions. 
This included changing our arthralgia criteria to include monoarthralgia, so even just soreness in one joint can now count as a minor criteria. We lowered the fever cutoff to 38 degrees Celsius. It's still 38.5 in a low-risk population. And we lowered the ESR cutoff to only greater than 30 millimeters in the first one hour, keeping the CRP the same at three. And these sort of minor tweaks, we're hoping, will help capture patients who have acute rheumatic fever in high-risk settings. That's, uh, this is a commendable uh job actually yeah, but uh, uh, there's one concern which uh, people like uh, us who practice in say India or uh, we think at least that we don't see enough rheumatic, uh, rheumatic fever nowadays and we, we probably uh, they, uh, it's right to think that maybe they're present very atypically and we miss them but also with these criteria there is a concern that there might be some overdiagnosis. How do you respond to that criticism? I think it's a really important point, and I think tailoring the use of these criteria to your specific situation is, is incredibly important. Certainly, uh, Dr. Jones had always intended for these criteria to have very high specificity, to not over-diagnose children with acute rheumatic fever, given the long-term implications of that, almost a lifetime of, of secondary prophylaxis, which we know is not uh, without risks and burden to the individual receiving it. Um, we weighed that against having improved sensitivity in areas where often there's no way to care for patients with advanced rheumatic heart disease. So India obviously differs in that way, but where I work in Uganda, once a patient's diagnosed with advanced rheumatic heart disease, they really don't have treatment options within the country. And that's true for a lot of areas where rheumatic heart disease is prevalent. In those situations, we're willing to accept a bit of overdiagnosis for preventing patients from moving from acute rheumatic fever into advanced rheumatic heart disease. I also think, importantly, that 2015 Jones criteria made room for the diagnosis of possible acute rheumatic fever. So it newly gave specific recommendations for acute rheumatic fever recurrences. We didn't provide those guidelines before. It was very vague, and now specific guidelines for recurrent disease are included. But we also made an allowance for the diagnosis, as I said, possible rheumatic fever. And if you're in a situation where you're not certain of the diagnosis, either because one of the diagnostic tests needed to fulfill criteria is not available or because the patient doesn't present in a classic fashion or possibly meet all of the criteria perfectly, the recommendations now are to put the patient on 12 months of secondary prophylaxis and to reassess after that year if you believe this patient truly had acute rheumatic fever and is at risk or secondary prophylaxis can be discontinued. Terrific. The other, uh, the other thing uh, that, I mean, it's related to this, of course, uh, the one big thing that has changed is uh, the intro introduction of echocardiographically detected carditis. So you, you remember that people have dilly-dallied with this particular thing and it's, <laughs> you know, a lot of people have thought about it and then discarded it. What is it that really pushed you to uh, include this this time? Um, I think that we have reached a point. So it was mentioned in the 1992 revision that there was evidence uh, that existed for subclinical carditis, but the decision at that time from the working group was that there was not sufficient evidence to include it in our document. I think since that time, if you look at the uh, the 2015 guidelines, it lists an entire table of studies that have supported the finding of subclinical carditis. And I believe there are 20 or more studies in that time period. 
that have uh, looked at patients with a diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever through ECHO and found that about, I think the pooled prevalence is around 17% of those patients have evidence of subclinical carditis. I think the thing that pushed us to include it was that almost half of those patients when followed longitudinally showed evidence of worsening of their cardiac disease. So even though you couldn't hear their cardiac disease on clinical examination, seeing it by echo did predict in over half that they would have worsening of important cardiac disease. And if carditis or the the rheumatic heart disease that follows rheumatic fever is really what we're trying to prevent here, it's really the the most important and the most lasting long-term sequelae of acute rheumatic fever, we felt like the literature had reached a point where we could say seeing something on echo really does have meaning in a lot of patients. And because carditis is only one of the clinical criteria needed to make the diagnosis of rheumatic fever, you do have to have at least one other major or two other minor criteria. We felt like it was important to include it uh, on the list of things that could move you towards a diagnosis of rheumatic fever. We also had the benefit of having echocardiographic criteria for the diagnosis of subclinical carditis. It's much harder when you leave those criteria open to interpretation, but now that we have some at least suggested criteria, we feel like that will further improve the specificity of the echo diagnosis of subclinical carditis. In that regard, uh, I mean, the WHF criteria that you mentioned uh, uh, rightly refer to subclinical rheumatic heart disease, not subclinical carditis. Correct. But I see that uh, a lot of the literature is not distinguished between the two. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of these studies of uh, incidentally detected rheumatic heart disease on echocardiographic screening refer to it as subclinical carditis. That's a big source of confusion, don't you think? Uh, I agree. So acute rheumatic fever is very different than chronic rheumatic heart disease, and not everyone makes that transition between the two. Certainly, uh, the carditis seen in acute rheumatic fever can be a pancarditis, where what we see in chronic rheumatic heart disease is typically only a valvulitis. Uh, Andrea, uh, that was interesting. Uh, Just before we go, uh, let's talk about what these guidelines should mean to policymakers uh, and people who devise guidelines, RFRHD control programs in these countries. What do you think they should do? What, What do you think they should take from these guidelines? Well, certainly just the republication of the guidelines in 2015, the inclusion specifically of these high-risk populations, we're hoping will spur a renewed global interest and advocacy in, in the fight against rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease. We know that there's an imbalance between the number of people affected by rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease and the amount of attention and funding it receives both from local governments and from the global Uh, public health community. I think giving a set of guidelines that specifically pays attention to how patients may be presenting in these high prevalence regions can help governments do that, can sort of show a renewed interest of the global community in helping uh, low-resource nations deal with rheumatic fever. Um, It can also uh, provide a stepping stone for retraining community health workers and other frontline providers on what to look for when you're looking at a patient that may or may not have acute rheumatic fever. Thanks, Andrea. I really do hope that uh, these guidelines really bring RHD back to the forefront of these 
policy makers in these developing countries. Thank you once again for being with us here and sharing your thoughts on this. Thanks. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you.